0: Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar A serial novel by Chris Thompson Narrated by Chris Thompson Chapter 1 Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar Don't most things end with heartbreak? Or rather, perhaps that's where they start. Let's start here. I've collapsed behind the wheelie bins outside my block of flats in Bethnal Green. It's night time. There is a man walking away from me. By my side, there is a suitcase. My age is 36. It's 2015. When you walk away from the man you've loved the most and the home in which you felt the safest, it's going to hurt. But this pain would pass quickly enough, I was certain, because I'd already done my grieving. Sitting opposite him at breakfast, beside him at the theatre, silently secreting droplets of grief, an imperceptible wet patch of pain on each chair I vacated for the last year. No, this agony would be short-lived. What I needed was to be a slut in New York. You can be a slut in New York for 90 days without a visa. I gave myself 89 just to be safe. Robert came to me at the National Theatre Studio. We signed the mortgage papers, and I told him I was going to New York. He was gracious, of course, but I knew he was fucked off. It was through him my interest in the city had been revived. I travelled with him for some shows he was in, and New York could have been something we did together, our next chapter. But I was taking it for myself. It was either that or sitting around in London waiting for the work rejections to trickle in. Either way, I was leaving. My career was going down the toilet. My nemesis playwright was having the career I thought would be mine. I figured, better to watch my career go down the drain from afar, with a cock in my hand. One of my hobbies was stalking my nemesis playwright's new show announcements online and ejaculating, that's my life, you fucker, give it back. In fact, everywhere I looked, someone else had my life. On the flight over to New York, in the window seat symmetrical to mine, a young artsy guy with tank top and biceps found himself next to a smoking hot dilf. You could tell they both thought they'd hit the jackpot. I watched as they introduced themselves and chatted as we hurtled over the Atlantic. After lunch, the artsy guy got some of his artwork out the overhead bin and showed it to his neighbour who looked at it, bemused but approvingly. I hoped it was shit. Not for the first time, I got an erection and cried at the same time. This artsy fucker had my life. I should be in his seat, showing my companion the copy of Carthage I just happened to have in my hand luggage, dazzling him with my charm, moving him with my words, listening intently to him talk about HDMI cables, grazing my hand over his groin, getting his number, moving into his Upper West Side apartment, walking home with him up 10th Avenue after my Broadway opening night, arranging his funeral, inheriting his wealth, but I was on the other side of the plane next to Margaret, who needed to pee, again. American men are obsessed with two things about British guys, our accents and our foreskins. These two attributes, I was delighted to discover, gave me access to a constituency of much hotter men than I could ever hope to meet in London. It quickly became my brand, and like many others with whom I was competing, I put the union flag on my grinder profile as my entry pass into this elite gay circle. One night, not long after I landed, I was being spit-roasted in a sling by two guys in Hell's Kitchen. You can tell everyone's on drugs because the first thing they ask for when they arrive is the Wi-Fi code and a phone charger. And when my top got wind of my accent, he looked down at me with disdain. He was the exotic British guy in this orgy, and this town wasn't big enough for the both of us. I proposed we joined forces and marketed ourselves to the room as a pair. I made a joke that we could reenact the musical sideshow, but he wasn't a show queen, or oh, it was just a shit joke. Either way, he was there first, so I sidled out the sling apologetically and went hunting for my jockstrap. I soon found a routine that suited me well. I would walk the streets in the day, sobbing in unremitting pain and misery, and then go to sex parties at night, where I'd cry slightly less. I was very skinny from hardly eating, but I didn't see it. I turned up to a man's house, and he looked me up and down and said, Ugh, and shut the door in my face. He messaged me as I got on the subway to say I was way skinnier than my photos implied. He was right, but I didn't see it. On the days I could stop crying altogether, I'd go to Brooklyn Library and work on Of Kith and Kin. I was writing about changing your mind. Given I'd never offered Robert a full explanation as to why I left him, I wondered if I might answer him in this play. Why does anyone do anything? All three of the main characters changed their minds in some way, but in the play I wanted to leave one of the reasons blank or at least obtuse enough for it to be an invitation to the audience to imagine. In Carthage, I never explained what Tommy did to land him in prison. I knew when I wrote it, I'd be answering that question for the rest of my life, and happily so. In Of Kith and Kin, I decided to keep Priya's reasons equally opaque, but the failure to fully explain Priya's decision was seen less favorably. People felt short-changed. I look back now, mortified by the grandness with which I thought I was writing what would surely become one of the great myths of contemporary theatre. Turns out, no one gave a shit. As the weather got colder, more and more people would take shelter in the top floor of the library. I made friends with Lionel, a recovering drug addict from Ohio, who would let me suck him off in the bathrooms on our lunch breaks. Lionel was living in a shelter, but residents would have to vacate during the day, so he'd come to the library to keep warm and study. He was fascinated with why I'd quit my career as a social worker, as he was training to become one. He spotted straight away my disagreeable habit of thinking I can fix people, or worse, thinking I know someone better than they know themselves after a mere five minutes. Lionel had no truck with that and put me in my place straight away. I quit social work because I was sick of cleaning up straight people's mess. But Lionel hypothesized I was saying that because it was a pithy one-liner rather than the reality He was right, of course, but I dug in. Why does you quitting the profession need to be framed with that defensive superiority? What's preventing you from saying you couldn't cope? I could cope. I just didn't want to do it anymore. That was total bullshit, but Lionel was gracious enough not to rip off my comforting mask of self-deception. My sister told me I was blocked, but how could I be blocked when I was walking the streets in tears every day? This was her case in point. I was stuck in my grief and not moving forward. I found a psychotherapist specialising in EMDR. Once a week, at a cost of $250 per session, I would sit in Gilbert's office holding a squishy ball in each hand. These balls would consecutively inflate and deflate over and over as I focused on a traumatising memory. I chose the image of myself collapsed by the wheelie bins with my suitcase packed after saying the final goodbye to Robert. I guess I could have also chosen rifling through the neighbours' bins as a child, looking for food, or maybe one of the two times I was gay-bashed. We all have an embarrassment of riches to choose from, Gilbert said. A treasure trove. I went for the wheelie bins, as it was more recent, but no less vivid. Tears welled forth. I was telling this story to Coach Marlon after our training session one Friday afternoon in Flatbush. I was rushing off to take the subway to my appointment with Gilbert's misery balls in Midtown, so I couldn't stay for the cool-down. Sorry, I have to run. Sorry who? Sorry, coach. This was another of my new routines. i turn up to Coach Marlon's apartment and strip naked at his door. He would then take all my measurements, inseam, weight, bicep flex, cock, waist, and then he'd put me through a workout before fucking me on the weight bench or the yoga mat. I learned pretty quickly not to break character. Inclined to giggles as I was, Coach Marlon made it clear that my post-scene analyses were unwelcome. Whereas I, creature of the theatre, was keen to do an after-show love-in and out-of-character debrief, you were wonderful, darling, Coach was never not in role. A few months later, he asked if he could take some pictures of me for his yearbook. I stopped going after that. But the misery balls seemed to be doing something. There was a shift of some sort. A deepening of the grief, maybe, Lionel offered. And I think he was right. We were walking in Prospect Park, watching the turtles clamour on the rocks to sunbathe. Some of them were fucking, and Lionel said it reminded him of Fire Island. Lionel was thinking about re-establishing contact with his father. The question on his mind today was, ought he to forgive his father before he reinstates him in his life, or will reinstating his father in his life facilitate his forgiveness? I bit my tongue because, of course, I knew the answer. I found Lionel very challenging because he saw through my bullshit and I was falling in love with him somewhat, and I really enjoyed sucking his dick. We were working on my deep-throating skills, which were getting me some callbacks from the elite Hell's Kitchen gaze. My plan was to tackle the city in stages, conquer Hell's Kitchen, then move into the Lower East Side before a triumphant debut in Williamsburg. Actually, forget it. I don't want to forgive him. Not yet. We watched the turtles mooch some more. They looked fat and baffled. Is there a reason you won't fuck me? he asked. Is it because you're worried your dick isn't big enough for me? It's true that the three times I tried to fuck Lionel, I lost my erection. And it's true, Lionel was bigger than me, but I like that. It's since I left Robert, it just doesn't work for that. Okay, he said, just don't fall in love with me, please. That's not what this is. Lionel stared at me for a long time, then cocked his head. I suddenly wondered if he was writing a dissertation on me, which he gleefully pointed out was typically narcissistic of me. He was very pleased with himself for that one we both looked down at our erections and agreed to disagree. A few days later, my friend Theo invited me to a dance party on a boat on the Hudson. There was a good DJ playing, and you sail up and down the river for a few hours and then get off. We set sail as the sun set. The men on this boat were extraordinarily beautiful. So much so, I needed to be drunk in order to speak to them. Looking back on the Instagram photos of that night, I'm the ugly pleb at a meet and greet for IMG. So I drank a lot. Then I decided we needed some MDMA. It was helpful in this sea of terrifyingly hot men to have a goal, a way to approach men that demonstrated that I knew we weren't equals. I had some success, and having forgotten Theo didn't touch drugs, I accrued quite a stash. The pores are heavy in New York, but on this boat they were gluttonous. I was very drunk and high. I found myself stood opposite two hunks, swaying from side to side. My hands were clasped in front of me, down by my groin, my feet shoulder-width apart, in that pose you adopt when you're wearing a suit at a funeral or in line to meet a royal. I dared not speak, but nodded along, satisfied to have been granted an audience and grateful to have been spared talking to anyone else. You're a playwright too, one of them said as we sailed past the Statue of Liberty again. Anything I've heard of? There were no good times to hear that phrase, but tonight... I soared, awash with commissions, blinded by green lights, overwhelmed with ideas. All lies, of course, and all an unintelligible garbled mess. My new nemesis walked away in pity with an eye roll you could see from space. At length, it was time to disembark. A heaving mass of euphoria, we were funneled down a ramp onto a dock. Out of nowhere, we were all shocked by a loud smacking sound, a firm thwack of something hitting hard concrete, and then the sound of a grimacing, cringing crowd. Oh shit, I thought. It's me. I came to and found I was face down on the ramp, my right leg swinging down into the Hudson. My playwright nemesis stepped over me, lifting his petticoat as he tiptoed by, and I hauled myself back on the ramp. I remember my shorts being soaking wet. Then there's a bit of a gap. Then I remember eating fries with Theo. Then I was being fucked in the toilets of Atlas Social Club. And then I found some remaining MDMA as I was putting my shorts back on. And then there's another gap. And then I woke up in Lionel's bed. Is heartbreak one word or two? Lionel asked me the next morning. I think it can be both. I felt like I'd been exhumed. I'd vomited several times, Lionel reported, and I had tried to teach him the choreography to all that jazz, but I was always polite and lovely, I was pleased to hear. He was hesitant to tell me the next part, but on reflection wanted me to know that I had spent a good hour rocking back and forth on the edge of his bed, saying, I am heartbroken. We agreed this was to be expected, given the gin and MDMA, and we lay in bed and closed our eyes, each giving himself over to the madman in his head. Next time on Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar. Shitting myself on an A-listers carpet. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.